Well, hey, good morning, Hill City Church. Um, Isaac Olivares here. I'm honored to be able to share the message this morning, um, continuing a really, really cool series that you guys have been going through, uh, the book of James, Faith That Works. I love this book, um, and I'm happy this morning to share from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Um, and I've kind of themed it uh, the test of impartial love. It, you know, going through the last couple of weeks in, in the series, um, we've seen how practical this book is. We've seen uh, just how James addresses some of these issues, and he kind of gives a little bit of a prelude to what we're going to be talking about today um, as it pertains to favoritism in the church. And when we look at this passage here, if you have your maybe your iPhone or your Bible, um, turn up to James chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 13. And I'm going to kind of break it up into three broad sections. And so I'll just kind of read them um, by each section and then we'll kind of just observe some things through it and then um, talk about those here in a little bit. But I want to start with verses one through four, James chapter two, um, verses one through four says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here, this is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand here or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Um, this portion of our section for today is, is really um, helping us just hone in on what James has kind of alluded to um, in James chapter 1. Let's take a word. This word, uh, a look at this word, favoritism, in verse one. The the Greek word literally means to receive the face. So when we talk about favoritism, um, think about how these readers might have uh, interpreted it. it. Says to receive the face. It's an Old Testament Hebrew word for partiality. So to receive the face literally means to make judgments and distinctions based on external considerations such as physical appearance, so, social status, or race. Now, when we think about this term, about how you know we, we're um, receiving the face, this is completely antithetical to who God is, the God of the Old Testament. Take a look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, verses 17 and 18. It says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. So the sin that James is not only kind of beginning to address here with this first section of our passage, but that he will full go, go into fully the rest of this passage is not so much the sin of, you know, the rich man coming into the church, but really what it is, is it's the church's flattery of this rich person at the expense of the poor. Uh, in verses 5 through 7, he's going to kind of zero in on what we're talking about. Let's read those verses, verses 5 through 7, James chapter 2. He says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So 
It's worth noting here that most of the readers of this letter of James were poor. Most of the people in this church that James is addressing, these were poor people. This is kind of important for us to note here um, for a couple of reasons. Poor Christians, like all Christians, are to be united by faith. What does he say in verse 1? To our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And they have a rich inheritance to look forward to. This is significant because if you remember the teachings of Jesus all throughout the New Testament, well, they focused on the kingdom of God. Take a look at what Matthew 25 says, verses 31 and 34. It says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. James begins to make this personal. He confronts his readers with their actions. I think it's very um, pertinent for us at this point, again, to remember that these are poor Christians. And they've dishonored God by not affirming their full inclusion by Christ. Um, I think it's very significant that, listen to how it says this here. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So when they show partiality to the rich, now remember, these are poor Christians. They're showing partiality to the rich. He doesn't say you've discriminated against them. He says you've discriminated against yourselves. Whether or not they accepted it, whether or not they acknowledged it, whether or not they were aware of it, the poor were part of them. They, they were already one. They had full inclusion. And as such, they had just as much right to look forward to their full inheritance in the kingdom of God. Uh, the thing about it is it, it addresses a sin that I think we all deal with. Again, James is zeroing in. James is making it personal and he is kind of getting to the heart of the issue here. Could they have been doing something with maybe not being aware and saying, well, these are the rich people. They're oppressing us, we saw. Maybe they're trying to gain favor. Maybe they're trying to, 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 to bribe their way out of their current status or their current situation. You see, the, the, the ironic thing about this favoritism is that it wasn't even reciprocal. It, it, it wasn't even like, like they were being shown favor and then in return they're trying to show favor. No, they were being oppressed and the very people oppressing them, they were showing favoritism towards. This is crazy. The sin that this addresses for us is this. Our secret desire for outward validation rather than for inward grace and mercy to be cultivated in our hearts. See, this is about valuing what is seen over what is unseen. What an indictment. This is such an indictment that James makes here. The ones blaspheming the name of Jesus. And this verb uh, in the original, it, 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 it signifies possession that they are, they, they are, uh, they belong to Jesus. The ones blaspheming that name to whom they belong are the very ones receiving preferential treatment in the church. 
What an indictment. That's sobering by James to bring that to them and say, look at what you're doing. And that's the thing that is fascinating, not in a good way, but fascinating about sin. It warps, it distorts, it convolutes. And before you know it, you're doing things that make no sense whatsoever. So the question we have to ask ourselves then is this, what are we willing to tolerate so that we can align ourselves with power or a secure future, status, or even peace of mind? You know, it can be so easy, and we've all been thinking about this in some way or another over these last several weeks with you know, uh, the pandemic and, and, and quarantine as a result of that, that what are we willing to do? A lot of times we think about it in noble terms. What are we willing to endure for the sake of the peace of mind of my family? What am I willing to do for the sake of my kids? What am I willing to do for the sake of a secure future for my family? What are we willing to tolerate? And sometimes without thinking about it, without giving it too much time and prayer maybe, we, we, we find ourselves maybe being willing to do things that are directly contrary to the things of God for the sake of our own peace of mind. And James addresses this head on. As we get into this last section of the passage, let's read verses 8 through 13. Because here James expounds on this even more and opens this up. Verse 8, he says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Verse 11, For he who said, You shall not commit adultery, also said, You shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And then the final sentence in our passage today, mercy triumphs over judgment. This to me is the main point of our passage today. Christians will be judged by a law, which James refers to as the royal law, that includes as one of its most fundamental demands, love for all. You see, up to this point in the passage, this is what James is basically saying. You do evil when you discriminate against the poor. However, if you fulfill the royal law, you do well. Okay, so what is the royal law? If you look at this last section of our passage, you see that there's a couple of things mentioned. First, James actually mentions two of the Ten Commandments. He also mentions the great commandment, which is to love the Lord your God, right? Uh, you can say with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he includes some things that are part of a, you know, the words of Jesus himself, but also the Ten Commandments. So the royal law, really, think of it like this. It's, it's those commands. It's those, those characteristics, those things that God would have us incorporate into our lives as Christians. In other words, these are the laws, the things that we know, the, the ways that we know God would want us to live our lives. 
those of us who call ourselves Christians, these are the things that should be governing our lives. That's the royal law. We adhere to this law um, faithfully. We adhere to it wholeheartedly, but we adhere to it voluntarily. That's the royal law. Okay, so then who is our neighbor? Um, I love how James has brought us to this point because he has he starts off with a very specific issue, right? He's talking about favoritism against the poor. He's talking about how um, that obviously it's not right and how it, it, it destroys unity within the church. And now by the end of this passage, we're talking about something that is really more wide ranging. And he's talking about some general principles here that should define uh, Christian living. Uh, so neighbor, in the Old Testament, it refers to fellow Israelites. Um, and, and so neighbor generally meant those fellow Israelites, those who they lived among within their own nation. And, 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 and that's kind of what, what that would symbolize. But then in the New Testament, Jesus um, expands that to everyone that a person might come into contact with. Okay. Including foreigners and enemies. So our neighbor then is anyone we could possibly come into contact with, including the people that we don't like including the people that may not like us. They are our neighbor. James is saying, look, discriminating against people, whether on the basis of their outward appearance, nationality, social status, you know, race, it's a clear violation of the love to which Jesus calls us to practice. But here's the thing. It's much more than just frowned upon. It's sin. Now, this is sobering. I mean, James, we know by now, even early on, we're only in chapter two, um, so we're not even quite halfway through the book of James, but James has a knack for just delivering sobering truth. He just gives it to us real. It's not just frowned upon for those of us who call ourselves Christians. It's not like, oh, come on, we got to do better. No, no, church, this is sin. This is something that we have to deal with. Why? Well, it shows contempt for the Imago Dei in every person, which is an affront to God. What's the Imago Dei? It's the image of God. Every person has been created in the image of God. And for us to treat other people uh, in ways that are contrary to how we should be treating them according to that royal law, that shows contempt for the image of God in that person. That's an affront to God. Listen, we all know someone who professing to be a Christian has not responded to God's mercy. Remember the last portion of our section here of our passage talks about mercy. We can all think of someone who may not be exhibiting that the way that they should. You know what? We might be looking in internally this morning and saying, you know what? That's me sometimes. I mean, they show little mercy, little compassion to those in need. The Bible is clear with us today, and it says that we will receive strict judgment. On the other hand, the opposite is also true. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the Christian whose life is characterized by mercy and compassion, they're ready for judgment day. But it's not 
Listen, it's not an accident that James is talking about this. I think it's another reminder for us today to say, listen, there is going to be a judgment. Again, this is sobering that there is a judgment. No matter if we put everything into practice that we possibly can, we know all the right things to do and we strive to do our very best. That's great. What we're doing is we're preparing ourselves for judgment day, which is still to come. Church, I really believe that this passage today is challenging us to pursue the physical and spiritual well-being of our neighbors with the same intensity, creativity, perseverance as we naturally do for ourselves. When's the last time we've asked ourselves to do that? Like, like as much as I care for myself and those closest to me, when's the last time I have pursued the well-being of, of a stranger To that degree, I think for all of us, that's a sobering challenge from the book of James. You know, it's impossible to fulfill God's law when we break the unity of the body of Christ. Um, As I was thinking through this passage, I was thinking about this in terms of evil. When James is talking about uh, favoritism within the church and he calls it sin, well, we know sin is evil. He equates that with an evil act. And I was thinking that, Okay, so, you know, evil isn't just a loud, obvious act of injustice. Evil can also be subtle, veiled, and ordinary. Veiled notions of favoritism deep within our hearts are just as evil as overt acts of violence and injustice. So, how can we apply this to our lives today? Like, how can we apply this to, to, you know, 21st century living, albeit quarantine right now, right? But there are some definite things we can apply to our lives today. When I think of favoritism in the church, and I thought about how it might play out or how it might look, one of the first thoughts that came to mind was this. Favoritism is a symptom of a cause-driven church rather than a mission-driven church. It's a misplaced expression of our diversity. How? Diversity is a beautiful thing in the church. It's a glimpse of heaven. We all bring our rich, diverse backgrounds and causes with us into the church. But if our supreme cause isn't Christ and Him crucified, then we're nothing more than a collection of random causes. Think about it. You brought your cause. You brought your family, your baggage, your cause. I bring my cause, my baggage. They brought their cause. And here we are. We're under uh, under the same roof, um, under the auspices of worshiping God. But really, when it comes down to it, we just really use um, the gospel as we can so that it can fuel our cause. There are many causes out there. But unless the main cause for us is Jesus Christ and His mission, we're just a random collection of causes. You see, the truth is, it's easier for us to champion a lesser cause than to surrender to Jesus. It's easier to do that. But what makes it so tricky is that a noble cause, man, that, we can get a lot of mileage out of that. You know, like saving the whales or, or feeding the homeless or, you know, the, the, the most random causes. And of course, today, helping frontline workers. All those things are great. There's nothing wrong with those causes. 
But there should be one main cause for the Christian. And that is full and total surrender to Jesus Christ. So when we champion the cause of Christ, it frees us to participate in other causes, but for the purpose of God's glory. I want to scoop back to verse one as we finish this kind of thought up here, but he says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Why does he say that glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Listen, he's the only one who brings glory to the table. Jesus is the one who is glorified. Jesus is the one who will glorify us on that special day. And we are working, we are working through sanctification right now as Christians to be sanctified for the sake of being glorified by Jesus. But it's his glory. And anything that we do, again, whether it's veiled or subtle or silent, that still constitutes evil if it has replaced the main cause for us, which is Jesus Christ. So even those seemingly noble thoughts of wanting to protect our family, to protect, and listen, of course we want to be prudent. We want to be, you know, we, we, uh, we want to plan and, and prepare, of course. But ultimately, where does our hope rest? It has to be in Jesus Christ. And it all starts with total surrender to the Lordship of Jesus and our participation in his mission. You know, I heard a quote once uh, that has stuck with me. Um, and I'm going to use this to kind of segue into kind of a little bit of a personal, maybe confession to help bring this home for us today. Um, if, if you have lost Jesus, this is the quote, if you have lost Jesus, go to the poor and they will take you back to him. As I thought about favoritism in the church, look, I'm going to be honest with you, you know, Isaac, Urban Outreach, Denver, you know what we're passionate about feeding the homeless and serving the marginalized in five points. But I'll be honest with you, there was a time when I showed them favoritism. When I thought that anyone else who didn't care about serving the homeless and the marginalized as much as I did, I was like, what's wrong with them? Where's their spirituality? Where's their faith? Quite frankly, I had a chip on my shoulder. It wasn't until I realized that it was bringing disunity, not only within my own spirit, within my own heart, but that was bringing division into the church. That was bringing disunity. That's not exhibiting the unity of the body of Christ. You see, it's a big deal when we disrupt the unity of the body of Christ. Everything we do, we, we should take it from the relationship of the Trinity that exhibits perfect unity within the triune God, the God that we serve. I've come to realize that there's beauty in the diversity of the body of Christ. But the cool thing about what James addresses here is that we cannot show favoritism even to the poor to try to compensate for maybe the wrongs and the injustices that we see. Even that is not, that's not biblically accurate. However, when we affirm everyone's inclusion, that even the poor, we acknowledge and affirm that they too have a rich inheritance to look forward to in Jesus Christ and in His kingdom to come, then we're on the right track. Um, we've all seen and heard of these stories and I've seen them downtown and it breaks my heart to see how injustice has been done. 
how favoritism, how people are, are looked over and, and neglected and cast aside. We have to believe that Jesus is working to reconcile the world. He's working to reconcile relationships. And this is what James is showing us today. That we ultimately, we have to be concerned first and foremost about submission to Jesus Christ in our own hearts. Because when that happens, what are we more aware of? We're more aware of the mercy that He's given us. We're more aware of the forgiveness that He's given us. We're more aware of those things, and then we're that much more likely to extend them to the people around us. My challenge for us this morning as we wrap up, and I'll, I'll wrap up in a word of prayer here in just a second, is that we would look for ways to extend mercy to our neighbors. Maybe we'll take a little bit longer to de- define who is my neighbor or who isn't. Listen, there are issues that are so dividing in our nation today. Whether it's immigration, whether it is the poor, whether it's issues surrounding even the coronavirus today, there's so many things that that would seek to divide us. Um, As Christians, may we be busy about surrendering to Jesus and extending mercy to those around us. And may we receive this sobering truth with the the weight that James gives it to say this is something that I need to make sure that I I clean out of my spirit I clean out of my heart and I surrender it to Jesus so I'd like to pray because listen you say maybe maybe this is something I, I need to work on but it starts with surrendering to Jesus then I would challenge you give your heart to him all these things, it can be so easy as we take a tedious little look at all the imperfections, all the wrongs that, that are going on in the world today. How do we reconcile that? How do we live with that? Be reminded today that Jesus, Jesus is the authority in every realm. In every realm, He is the authority. He has dominion in every realm. And He's working to bring all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. So let me pray for us this morning. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank You so much. Thank You for the word from from the book of James that You have given us today. I thank You, God, because at the foot of the cross, we're all equal. And when we recognize just what You've done for us, How could we have time to to parse out who is better than than anyone else in the body of Christ? But help us to lay aside our differences and, and not to ignore our differences, but to say, I bring my cause, I bring my 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 personal um likes and dislikes, I bring all of those to the cross, and I acknowledge that there is one thing ultimately, it's one thing that I want to live for. And that's Jesus making you the Lord of my life and participating in your mission. That's it. That's it. Certainly doesn't make it any easier, but it's clear. And Lord God, I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would enable us, would empower us to do just that. To love our neighbor relentlessly. To be as concerned about their well-being as we are about our own. That we would be as creative, that we would persevere, that would we'd be as intense when we think about ways to be there for others. So truly we can enact this faith 
that works in our life. Thank you for inspiring James to write such a powerful passage for us today. Lord, we love you and we acknowledge you as the Lord of our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen.